Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Rick Mercer, and we are here for another episode of the Garner Station podcast, uh, which we also put on video. We are here recording at Full Bloom right here on Main Street in uh, historic downtown Garner, and I am really excited and really honored because today my guest is uh, Dr. David Forbes, a Garner resident and a, uh, an educator, uh, a pastor. You've been a pastor and um, really exciting. We're going to talk about some of this, uh, uh, both a, a witness to and a participant in uh, history, and specifically the history of the, the civil rights uh, movement. Um, so um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. It's Forbes. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. We uh, greatly appreciate the way you've uh, always always helped us and helped represent Garner uh, through the years, the, the, like the All America City um, delegation that we took out to Denver, and and uh, we, you you come back periodically to town hall and, and and do the invocation for council meetings and for other other events, and um, it's uh, it's just an honor to have you in our community. It's my pleasure to be uh, a part of Garner and uh, to be able to do my fair share of public service. Thank you. Let's, um, let's jump into it. Tell us a little bit about where you, uh, where you grew up. Uh, I uh, grew up in Raleigh, in southeast Raleigh, in the 900 block of South Bloodworth Street. Uh, my father, uh, the late Bishop James A. Forbes Sr., pastor of the church at Bloodworth and Bledsoe, so we were half block from the church. So I grew up with a lot of influence of the church uh, in my life and in the life of my siblings, there are eight of us. Uh, six of us still uh, are, are here, two are deceased, and our parents are, but uh, we uh, were very well grounded. Uh, our family was respected in the community. As a matter of fact, in 1955 or so, we were named uh, a, a family of Raleigh. Okay. Uh, so it was a real honor to go out to Merthyr College and be recognized and picture in the paper and all that kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were inducted into the Raleigh Hall of Fame about, was it about 10 years ago? Uh, that's 2013, about yeah. seven years ago. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So what was the... Um, Kind of what are the criteria for that, or, or what were the, some of the things that they cited? They, they cited uh, my historical involvement in the civil rights movement, the sit-ins, and being a founding member of SNCC. Great. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I want to talk about that because we are, on, we are in the celebrating, marking the 60th anniversary of um, the start of the sit-ins, they started in, in Greensboro, and then they um, moved to, well, then there was a sit-in movement in Raleigh, in which mm -hmm. you participated, and, and, pro and elsewhere in North Carolina, weren't they? Yes, all, all across, pretty much the sit-ins followed the pattern of historically uh, black colleges. So wherever colleges were, was where uh, sit-in activity took place. So in Charlotte, of course, with Johnson C. Smith there, and Winston-Salem, Winston-Salem State University there, uh, of course, A&T and Durham, where North Carolina Central is, and Raleigh, where St. Augustine's and Shaw uh, exist. Yeah. Um, 
So what was it about February 1960? Was there, was there momentum in the, in the movement? Had it, had it kind of plateaued and, and students and activists were saying, we got to do something to jumpstart? Well, they had, they, there have always been a recognition that there was inequity uh, and inequality in North Carolina. Uh, North Carolina has always had uh, uh, an etiquette or did up to that time of, uh, you know, you had um, public facilities for whites, for blacks, and for Native Americans. But those groups never met at any uh, serious plateau. So in 1960, uh, students at A&T, I, I don't know the story as to how it happened, but somehow, based upon what they had learned about the system and about the necessity to have some impetus for change, they went to Woolworths in Greensboro and sat down at the lunch counter. That sounds very benign, yeah. but in 1960, that was a heady act because public accommodation laws, mores, uh, made it a taboo for black people to expect to get service. We're seated here in a coffee house. Yeah. You, you, you could not go, if you were black or Native American, you could not go to a coffee house. Uh, unless it were a black or a Native American coffee house, uh, which were few and far in between. And so the students at A&T uh, were real heroes because they defied the local laws and mores, and they're defying and the arrest, mass arrests of students in Greensboro, North Carolina, A&T, and Bennett stimulated college students across the country, across the South in particular, to do likewise. And so when we heard about A&T and the four students who went to Woolworth, we began meeting uh, students and discussing what we might do to parallel what had taken place and uh, as it has turned out, it, turned, it, 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 it was very effective in beginning to be uh, a part of the process of social change. Uh, as a matter of fact, we picketed Woolworths, McClellan's, uh, Cress, and Hudson Belk who had downtown a restaurant, as well as at Cameron Village. And all of those no longer exist, like Eastern Airlines. Yeah. Uh, they were resisted change, and the economics, especially after boycotts began, because we taught the citizenry, if you cannot eat at the lunch counter, then you don't buy that product. So that led to a great deal of, of change in terms of uh, public accommodation in uh, commercial establishments and hotels. I mean, you can Im imagine you're traveling um, long distance from New York to Atlanta. There's, you, you, there's no hotel. 
So if you did not know somebody who you could stop in their home, uh, there was no place to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, buses, trains, uh, I don't know about planes, but I suspect they, they were yeah. segregated, uh, would have a section for blacks or Native Americans, and uh, otherwise there was no accommodation. So let's go back um, in, uh, you were uh, at the time a student at Shaw? Yes. Uh, freshman, sophomore, do you remember? I was a sophomore. Sophomore, so. Uh, 19 years old. And there was, there was a movement amongst the students at Shaw and maybe it's also St. Augustine's? Yes. To say, well, there's, there's, something, you know, there's something going on in, in Greensboro, students have stepped up, we've got to... What can we do here? Was that and and then you, and then you know, pick the story up from there. Yes, we started uh, meeting. Um, we were fortunate to have faculty who had taught us uh, very well. As a matter of fact, even in the public schools about uh, rights, about the Constitution, about the the amendments to the Constitution. Uh, we were required to memorize the preamble to the Constitution and the words of Thomas Jefferson, that all are created equal and endowed by, they are created with certain inalienable rights. This was poetry, but it was a cacophony between the poetry and what actually existed in the community. So it was a natural curiosity to see what would happen if public accommodations were challenged. Um, and and the, much of the focus of activity was at, in Cameron Village. Was that sort of like the, the main place where people went to shop in Raleigh that day? That was the most upscale okay. place uh, for shopping in Raleigh. You had a Sears and a Robux out there and you had a lot of shops. Uh, and of course, it would be a natural if you were in that community and lunchtime came, it would be a natural to want lunch, but there was no place that black folks could get lunch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in, in planning the, um, you know, planning the sit-ins, you know, was there discussion about the tactics and strategies and, and whether, uh, you know, specifically the, the, the strategy of, of nonviolent uh, direct action? Was there, was there some debate about, well, you know, I don't, I don't know about the nonviolent stuff because... If I'm under attack, I might want to defend myself. Well, we very quickly arrived at a recognition that any challenge to the status quo would have to be nonviolent because uh, the powers that be were very adept at putting down insurrection or anything that would challenge the status quo. So we determined early even before the SNCC Foundation, where we began to get training, uh, it just kind of made sense that you can't go downtown and raise hell mm -hmm. because they know how to deal with hell racers. Yeah. Uh, but if you were nonviolent, if you were well-dressed, uh, and we screened students, uh, students who had a propensity for violence, we asked them to be a part of the movement, but to be in the background. You make signs. Yeah. Um, you even be the ultimate defense. Uh, 
So we had football players who would be with us uh, just by their very size yeah. that made for some defense. Could really help you make an escape if that's what you needed. That's right. Yeah. We also spoke to students that if your parents work for public schools or if, if you, your family would be at risk, don't allow the, the News Observer photographers to get your picture because there would be retribution to your family. Yeah. So uh, out of maybe 500 students, we maybe had at most 75 or 80 who actually sat in. Uh, but others were auxiliary. Yeah. They would make picket signs. They would raise funds. They would uh, be protection. Um, that kind of thing. So the, the movement just among uh, Shaw students, maybe Shaw and St. Augustine's, was about 500 students strong? No, no, no. There, there were about 500 students at Shaw okay. in the full about about a third of what is that show now? Yeah. It was a small student body, and maybe 75 or 80 were actively involved in the sit-ins uh, by going to Woolworth or Crest or McClellan's or, or Hudson Belt um, mm -hmm. restaurant. Was there a broader debate within maybe not just the university, but also within the African-American community about, like, should we, is this the time for, for to, oh, yes. to, to take on this activism, or do we need to, uh, you know, go slower or, or not be so confrontational? What was the nature of the debate? Uh, the vast majority of people in the African-American community were weary of challenging the system. Uh, they thought it would be dangerous. They thought that it would rile the powers that be. Uh, but somehow, uh, as it worked out, there were enough people who were supportive, who said, uh, if you end up going to jail, we'll provide bail money, mm -hmm. we'll provide lawyers, um, that kind of thing. And then, of course, um, those of us who uh, were... Uh, under the control of our parents, our parents allowed us to take that risk because they could see the value. Um, it was always known that if you do not challenge the status quo, the status quo will remain the status quo. Yeah. Um, but if you almost Sir Isaac Newton, for every action there's an opposite and equal reaction. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was the way that that went down. So then uh, jumping forward to, to April 1960, um, and again, we'll be celebrating the 60th anniversary of this soon. Um, students met at, on the campus of Shaw to, was there the specific intent to form the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Council or, or SNCC, yes. or, or was that it not was, a? It was not determined by mm -hmm. students. It was determined by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, of which Dr. Martin Luther King was the president, and Ella Baker 
was the executive secretary or the field secretary. Mm -hmm. And after A&T uh, and the wildfire spread of sit-ins across the South, they determined that students needed the opportunity to learn from each other mm -hmm. because things were different in Raleigh uh, from Greensboro to Nashville to uh, Alabama, things were different. And so there was a need to have some communicative network. So that was the perceived uh, re reason for the need for, for the formation of SNCC. And tell us what it did. What what did the organization do what, when you came out of the the, the conference in, in April? What uh, like what did you have organizationally, and what sort of what were your marching orders going? Okay, forward? a decision was made, um, a very important decision, that SCLC would be a facilitator, but not a controller, mm. of the movement. Uh, the major contribution that Ella Baker made was recognizing that old men had had years to challenge the system and had not. Mm -hmm. So what license would they have to control the students who were putting their butts on the line mm -hmm. for social change? And at the conference in April of, two, of 1960, uh, SNCC was founded, and it was founded on a formula of having representation from each of the states. So Alabama, uh, the southern states, yes, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland. Those were the key six to eight states from whence the students came, and um, I was selected to be one of two. North Carolina is so wide mm -hmm. that it was determined that it would not be useful to have one uh, founding representative. But I, mm -hmm. along with Charles Jones, uh, at, uh, who died earlier this year, he was a, a prominent civil rights attorney in Charlotte. He represented the western part of the state, and I represented the central and eastern part of the state. Mm -hmm. As a founding representative of SNCC. And we were committed to being in communication with each other, to let each other know what experiences we were having, uh, to identify any pitfalls. Uh, and also, we were committed once a month, the founding members of gathering in Atlanta at Morehouse yeah. College, where we sat at the feet of Dr. King and uh, Dr. Wyatt Walker and others uh, for counsel from the elders. So there, there was some consultation with the elders. It was, oh, yes. it was there was student autonomy, like you say, and, yes. and Ella Baker saw that as, as essential. Um, let, let's go back to Ella Baker real quick, because I think that um, so many, I, I don't know a lot about her, but I think a lot of people don't know about her role in the, in the movement. Um, maybe more broadly, the role of uh, women in the movement. Um, can you tell us about Ella Baker? Ella Baker was an extraordinary lady. She was from Littleton um, in Warren County. Um, she had a home there. Uh, 
She was a graduate of Shaw. Uh, she was known by Shaw law to be a radical. Mm -hmm. um, she would challenge the university administration on needs for better food and housing and the like. Um, she graduated, I think, in the late eight, uh, 1920s. Uh, so uh, she would have been probably 40 or 50 in 1960 and a very firebrand lady uh, who was quiet but very powerful in her thinking and in her ability to counsel young people. Uh, I got to know her. I used to work during the summers in order to pay tuition at Shaw. I worked in New York and she lived in New York at Lenox Terrace and I would visit her and sit down at her feet and hear her stories of work that she had done with NACP and with unions, Byatt Rustin and A. Philip Randolph and people of that cut. Um, she uh, was, ta was tasked by SCLC to look into the feasibility of bringing the students together. Mm -hmm. And so she came to Shaw and uh, the president appointed me to be one of the students and local planners for this upcoming April conference. And was there, um, <clears throat> was there a lot of debate and discussion at that conference about tactics moving forward, whether it should continue to be nonviolent direct uh, action or whether there should be, you know, tra training for, for self-defense or whether there should be um, just other strategies besides maybe um, at that, social action? At that point, uh, the counsel that we received from Dr. King and Dr. Walker and others, including Ella Baker, was the best tactic would be to be nonviolent because there would tend to be uh, an immediate radical response yeah. by the police and powers that be if there were. Yeah. Uh, now later on uh, in SNCC there, w there was m more um, serious debate on the nonviolent versus the self-defense. Uh, oh, well, mid, mid 60s, 1966. About the, about with, the, the mid 60s. Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, but during the initial uh, establishment, it was it was it was nonviolent. Yeah, and so then then SNCC would go on to take part in uh, like the Freedom Rides throughout the South. Yes, is that right, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, voter registration drives throughout the South, and and you know I think many people don't know this or remember this, and younger people maybe haven't been taught it, but. Um, you know, many people were subjected to horrendous violence and yes. and, and death. Yes, and yes, it was it was heady to challenge the system. Uh, we were fortunate uh, in North Carolina that we did not have very much violence. Uh, I, I, over the years, have observed that North Carolinians were were peaceful racists. Uh, 
that, that racist, yeah. but but not bull Connor, right. uh, dogs and 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 batons, uh, but in Alabama, in parts of Tennessee and South Carolina, yeah. it was. In Mississippi, you had to put your life on the line, and some people, in fact, died or were killed yes. um, because they, there were those who were um, not different from today, those who don't want folks to have an easy ch chance to vote, Yeah, suppression of, of voting rights. Uh, there is a museum in uh, Selma, Alabama, a voting rights museum that uh, is very telltale in terms of the extent to which uh, people in power would go to keep people from voting. Mm -hmm. Jumping ahead to, to present, does it, does it feel like we've taken some steps back in terms of voters' rights um, and other, other things too, but the first voters' rights? I, I, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, there has been a retrenchment. Um, there are those powers that be uh, that are working hard to keep one from having it easy to vote. Uh, it would seem to me that it would be a very powerful uh, badge of democracy that people are encouraged to vote, but there's a subtle and at times not so subtle effort to keep people from voting. My wife and I voted early last week, and it felt good for nobody to ask for your ID. Uh, you shouldn't have to jump through hurdles. There are too many people who don't have ID. Now, we have ID. Uh, license and the like, but there are those people who do not have papers uh, to validate them, but they're nonetheless citizens. They pay, t they, they don't ask for, for, for ID to pay taxes. So there should not be any ID for exercise of, of, of the franchise. Mm -hmm. And I know we have, you have some, some connections to Charlottesville, not, not specific, uh, Charlottesville the place. Didn't you work at the University of Virginia for, for a I, period? I, I did not, but I attended uh, the University of Virginia at Charlottesville. A, gra a graduate program? A graduate program. I attended as program. an undergraduate. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, when, when you saw the images in, in uh, August 2017, what, what went through your mind when you saw that? happening there a place a place you know in in 2017 it 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 was was tragic and difficult to see that that would take place however uh Charlottesville for me was not squeaky clean i certainly felt as a african american uh in a predominantly white university and white department uh um not fully accepted and appreciated. Um, as a matter of fact, I've completed all of the coursework for the doctorate, but I never wrote a dissertation because there was nobody there who had any interest in my topic, which was the black church. Oh. So I left AB, what's called ABD, yeah, all, all the dissertation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I don't think I knew that. But I thought, for some reason, I thought you maybe had worked there, but, and, but you did your graduate. And all I did. I did. In the religion department? In the sociology department. And the chairman of the department was a sociologist of religion, but he was not familiar with my literature, and he was not invested in, in supporting my research. You, you've also been an educator and a pastor. You, you studied elementary education as an undergraduate. Yes. And did you go on to teach? I taught in Wilson for two years and for a couple of years in New York City in the public schools. Did you share with your students um, like what you had done as a, as a college student and your, you know, your activism? I'm not sure that I did uh, because at that time uh, it would not be politic. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I graduated from Shaw, Raleigh City Schools had a pact with Shaw that the two top education students would be hired. Uh, and Betty Ridley, a classmate who was very sharp, was hired. I was number two. And I kept waiting for a contract. I never got one, uh, which was the backwash from the civil rights. So when I went to Wilson to interview, uh, the last question that the superintendent of the schools asked me is, are you a member of the NACP? So that gives you some sense that it would not be politic yeah. at that time. This is 1962 okay. uh, to, to talk about yeah. particularly the elementary school students. Now, when I got to the college level, I talk more about it, but not with elementary school students. Mm -hmm. Did you see, I mean, you would have still seen segregated schools because although Brown versus Board of Education was in 1954, it would be many years later before the schools were in practice integrated. In North Carolina, I never taught in a uh, desegregated school. Uh, so 54, this is 62 through 64, for that 10-year period, nothing changed. Yeah. Uh, Which is astonishing. I mean, it's not, but it is, too. You think, well, the Supreme Court rules on something, and then 10 years on, a whole generation of students later, it was called, still nothing. It was called massive resistance. Yeah. The powers that be said, okay, we integrated the lunch counters, we... They should segregated the buses and the train, but I'd be damned if my children are going to go to school with Negroes. That was the attitude. Mm -hmm. And here in Garner, the you know Garner High School was not integrated until '68 when they built the the start of the school year when they had the new building, which is mm -hmm. now Garner Garner Magnet. Um, so that that was a full 14 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah. Uh, yeah. desegregation does not come easy because white privilege makes people feel that they have a right not to be in the company of people who are different from themselves. And we see it today. Would you, would you look, looking at it, the school system, uh, 
pick, pick your school system, pick a county, a city, whatever, would you, would you say that there is de facto segregation along race and class lines? I would say absolutely there is uh, racism uh, and uh, I generally say these days when I talk about civil rights that things are uh, tougher now than they were in 1960 uh, because at least in 1960 you knew mm -hmm. uh, how the social fabric was drawn uh, but today, people are polite. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're politely racist. Uh, they are not as confrontive. Yeah. And therefore, it puts people to sleep. And uh -huh. as I go around, I say to people that you need to stay woke. Not awake, but woke. Mm -hmm. mm, because the system is not inherently fair and equitable. Are there prescriptions that you would suggest for, let's say, better having a more equitable, more equitable school systems? I think that people need to, to stay woke, to watch public policy, to watch people. Uh, we're in a political season uh, when people are going after votes, so uh, don't let them, uh, dic don't let them lecture you, you raise questions of them in terms of, okay, you want my vote? What do you pledge to do to be deserving of my vote? And so uh, that means uh, whether you're talking about public accommodation or employment or uh, criminal justice or, or schools, whatever it is, what do you come prepared to pledge yourself to do that relates to my reality. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm not a part of the broad politic. I have some unique historical mm -hmm. baggage in my reality. Yeah. When you see young people today, what, what, what gives you hope and what do you think maybe, uh, well, what gives you hope? Or, or do, you, you know, do you see hope when you look at the what young people are doing today? I have to have hope. However, uh, I also have worry that uh, it is so very easy for young people to be hoodwinked uh, by a superficial civility that undermines the reality of what they face. It is still uh, a reality that uh, more black babies die in childbirth. It is still a reality that more black children or Native American children or minority children don't do well in our public schools. It is still a reality uh, that we are the first, the, the last hired and the first fired. It's so all of those realities which have been historical are still a part of our practice. And so uh, the hope is that young people will be registered, will be vote, voters, will educate themselves, will have savvy mm -hmm. in terms of making use of the uh, political discourse. Uh, 
So, so I have hope, but also have concern that uh, not enough young people and even older people are woke mm -hmm. and see what is going on to undermine the rights of our people. Do you have an opportunity a lot these, the, much these days to, um, to talk publicly, whether it's uh, at the pulpit or uh, elsewhere? What do, you, what do you do in these days? Uh, I do preach, and I also try to have a thread in my preachment while it is biblical, uh, which is also social and political, because the Bible is social and political. Uh, I uh, lecture at universities and at civic groups and I try to be honest about what I see and where I see things being and what my hopes are for for the future. Do you think if when you were 19 looking ahead 60 years would you do you think you would have imagined this do you do you think you would have or did you envision that surely 60 years into the future there will be more progress? Or did you, I mean, did you think in those, did you try to think long term? I think that we put our butts on the line with a very clear hope that it would make a difference. And in some ways it has made a difference. Um, you're talking about SNCC being founded in 1960. By 1964, uh, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, uh, which stopped lynching. I mean, it's kind of hard to talk in those terms today, but in 1960, um, uh, blacks were at risk mm -hmm. <laughs> wherever you went. Uh, there were lynchings and killings, and uh, if you did, if you got out of line, if you, mm -hmm. that was the reason that the sit-ins were so dangerous that uh, the body politic was so writ that it was, it was dangerous to step out of line. I mean, that was what happened to Emmett Till. Uh, just by looking at a white woman, he, he was destroyed and thrown in a lake. Um, so as, as I go back to 1960, I had hope that there would be some changes. And the changes came in the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Movement. And the next year, the, the, the um, Voting Rights Act. Uh, and that's the reason that I am so fidgety about anybody who comes after the vote, because too many people died to win the vote. And everybody deserves, without regard to race or gender or origin, uh, to to participate fully and above board as a as a part of our electoral process. That's great. Well, I think we're coming up on time, so uh, we're probably going to wrap it up here. We could talk for many more hours. We could have a. And we could probably have a series, a, a serial, <laughs> uh, you know, podcast serial, um, just talking to you about this stuff. Um, and I know we didn't talk as much about your, your career um, as an educator or, or a pastor, um, but I certainly appreciate you coming here and being able to 
kind of fill us in on some history that I think a lot of people have, again, forgotten or don't fully know or well, don't fully understand the implications of it's, it. It's, it's my pleasure, and I uh, very much appreciate you and your colleague for the conversation uh, that Community Calendar gives. I think that it's very needful. Uh, I watch, and uh, I am enhanced by watching and hearing and appreciate what you do. Thank you. And I hope we can have you on again. I hope it won't be uh, a long time in between visits. Any time. Um, Any time. Great. Um, well, thanks, y'all. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Garner's Station podcast. Uh, I'm Rick Mercer. Um, again, very honored to have uh, Dr. Forbes with us. Uh, check this out. You can check us out on YouTube. Uh, you can also watch or listen to uh, a podcast wherever you get uh, wherever you get them. And um, we'll see you next time on Garner Station. <laughs>